mean, like anything, preparation is key, right? Yep. Really taking time to understand the event, which I know it's really hard to do, especially when you're hopping from event to event, right? Is to sit down and really dig in to the event that's coming up. What's the schedule? Who's going to be there if you have the list, right? If you don't have the list, doing some informal networking to determine who's going to be there and how can you maximize those opportunities? And for me, I look at it from wearing the conference organizer hat too, right? Hey folks, this is Clayton Collins, CEO at HW Media and your host for the Housing News Podcast. Today's guest is somewhat of a e-note and e-closing influencer. We have Amy Moses, Vice President of Marketing and Communications at EscrowTab. Amy joins us on this episode to help break down the knowledge barrier on everything, remote online notarization, iPen, forensically electronic verifiable signatures, e-closing, e-note. We talk about what inning we are in, in terms of e-closing and e-note adoption and what the industry has to do to drive further adoption and really achieve a more efficient and more elastic mortgage process. Amy will also be a speaker at Housing Wire Annual coming up on October 3rd in Scottsdale, Arizona. I hope you really enjoy this episode and benefit from some of Amy's expertise and knowledge on eClose and all things mortgage technology. Hey folks, and now a quick message from our housing news podcast sponsor, Radiant Title Services. You hear the term blockchain show up more and more in the real estate industry, but what does it mean for lenders and homeowners? And how does servicing work when funding mortgages from the blockchain? Radiant's title insurance and closing services platform, Title Genius, answers these questions with a blockchain-enabled online portal that gives you simple pricing, smarter processes, more transparency, and superior service. Visit MyTitleGenius.com. And if you're a real estate agent, there's a link right on the landing page with specific knowledge for you. Check out MyTitleGenius.com for more information. All right, Amy, there's so many acronyms in this mortgage world, and we won't try to define them all. Come come on, please help me with the acronyms that are like related to e-closing and the topics we're going to talk about today. So we have RON, IPEN. Let's start there. Let's let's start. Like, what, what is RON? Yeah, so RON, Remote Online Notarization, right? So two people are not in the same place. So this could be a great example, right, Clayton? So you're the borrower, I'm the notary, we're doing this signing remotely. And that's what I like to call the media darling, because there's been a lot of talk over the past several years about Ron. So that's what most people are familiar with, lenders, title companies, notaries. Then IPEN, and that's a newer one in the industry. So it used to be called just generically e-notarization. That's how Mm -hmm. people may have heard of it. But over the past year or so, this new acronym, IPEN, has surfaced. So in-person electronic notarization, where we'd be sitting here at the signing room table, and I would be electronically notarizing your documents face-to-face. So it's still that same face-to-face closing, excuse me, as you'd have before. It's just all the documents are signed and notarized electronically instead of on paper. 
Okay, and I've heard you use the term forensically, electronically verifiable signature. Where does that fit into the this whole picture here? And are we using an acronym for that yet? Or are we still using this awkward 40-character phrase to describe a forensically electronic verifiable signature? We are still using that awkward phrase that is a bit of a tongue twister. I was yeah. just doing tongue twisters with my niece the other day. I should add that one in. But I joke that it should be FEVS. So for a talk. Forensically, (laughs) electronic, verifiable signature. And that's different than a click to sign. So a lot of what we do now, right, when we're signing documents, we have our signature in our computer and we just click, right? And it'll say Amy Elmosis, Amy Elmosis, wherever I click, right? It just adds that. Well, a forensically electronic, verifiable signature, I would have a stylus. I don't have one handy, but I would actually write my name on the documents on a tablet. And so it's forensically verifiable because my electronic signature could be compared to my signature on a piece of paper in court. And they could say, oh, yes, this is Amy L. Moses here with pen and paper, and this is her with a stylus on a tablet. So it's verifiable that way. All right. So we're stepping past the world where wet signature feels like the the most secure way to do something. I feel in, in housing and all other industries or many other industries, wet signature has seemed to be the 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 crown jewel of an actual legally verifiable um, documentation. But now we're getting to a point where we can have in-person signatures that are, can actually forensically be verified as the person a step further than what we could do with a, a ballpoint pen. That is correct. And there are 4,000 pressure points, believe it or not, when we sign our name on a document with that stylus on a tablet. And so that's how they can verify it via that 4,000 pressure points and compare it to our signature on a pen. So it's a whole new world that we've entered into and that our legal system has adopted. You know, like the, the terrible little screens you have to sign if you're like checking out at the grocery store or like some <laughs> other, like some other point of sale experience. So I'm, I'm guessing like we've moved past the place where like my signature looks nothing similar on those little pads that does like in person or on a higher quality stylus plus tablet. Exactly. And that's what people think of, right? I mean, I use those signing pads yesterday. I was at a baseball game and I was buying some merchandise and it's just, I just scribble, right? Yeah. yeah. It's like a line. Don't actually sign your name, but this, what's neat about it is with the tablet, you can lean on it. And so I can lean on it just as how you would set your wrist down, right? On a tablet or a piece of paper, when you sign your name or a notepad or a piece of paper, same thing with a tablet. You're leaning your wrist down or your hand down and signing. So that's why you're actually getting your real signature because it's not that awkward little chintzy pen with a cord attached to a tablet that's kind of <laughs> up in the air somewhere at the grocery store. <laughs> okay. So let's define a few more terms before we jump into the conversation. We just want to make sure we're using the same vernacular and everyone understands what we're talking about here. So how do you define e-closing? Ooh, that's a good one. So e-closing can be a lot of different things, right? So e-closing would be if you're using some kind of um, electronic method to sign at least part of your documents. Okay. And so that could be when you're sitting at the closing table that the note is going to be signed electronically or perhaps all of the other documents will be signed electronically. The note is still signed using... Uh, paper. So it's still a wet sign note. And so there's different, you know, hybrid methods that people talk about. 
but we're trying to get people to that world of e-closing where at least some of it is done electronically at the closing table. And again, that can be in person, that can be remote, the entire package, part of the package. So there's a variety of different combinations and methods that can be done via e-closing, but it's just that you've started to take that closing electronic. So kind of going through the the value chain, what is the value of e-closing to the the consumer, the 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 lender, the title company, the secondary marketer, servicer? Like how does the e-closing impact folks from the the the, the borrower all the way to the person who ultimately holds the mortgage-backed security or mortgage, mortgage servicing right? Sure, yeah. So the borrower, right, we want to have an electronic experience at the closing table, just as we do in almost every other facet of our yeah. life, right? So part of it is just providing the lender, providing the borrower that experience that we're used to. Also, it's quicker if we can sign things electronically rather than having to sign things on paper. You hear people advertise, oh, it can be a 20-minute a closing perhaps, right? Yeah. But they're still getting, in some cases, they're still getting that face-to-face that the borrower desires. So there's been all kinds of studies lately. Solidify's done one. I just saw another article yesterday about you know over 75% of borrowers at least want that face-to-face interaction at the closing table or at some point throughout that mortgage process. And so it's still giving them that face-to-face even if things are electronic. And uh, another aspect for the borrower that they don't often think about is the security. Right. Instead of the notary having their package, their loan package riding around in the trunk of their car, the backseat, then they stop to get gas, they stop at the Starbucks. Who knows what happens to those documents when it's electronic? It's all a lot more secure. And so that's something as a borrower, you know, we don't think about a lot. You and I might in this industry, but most of the borrowers do. And so it's a lot more secure for them. For the lender, there's a lot of efficiencies built in. You know, one is again, they can get it done a lot quicker. Um, there's an opportunity for them to save money on this process. They can get it sold into the secondary market a lot quicker. And so they're saving a lot of money there. And we talk a lot to title companies in my business now. And for title companies, same thing, right? It's a there's a lot of efficiencies built into the process that's quicker, saving money for them. And then notaries. And that's a new group that I've started talking to in the last six months. And it's unbelievable what they go through to print and prepare those packages before they go out to a signing. And then there's a correction that needs to be made, right? And so then they're having to reprint or they go through the signing. They have to make the corrections afterward. So the time savings for them is incredible, let alone the savings on paper, right? A lot of this, everybody in that value chain is saving, not having to print the paper, store the actual documents, you know, pay for storage fees at Iron Mountain, pay to ship documents, who's ever paying for those FedEx charges right along the way. And so just every hand that the paper has to touch throughout the entire process from the borrower signing it to the notary, first printing it, shipping it, you know, getting it back to the title company, We don't have any of that and the expenses and everything that can fall through the cracks there with missing signatures, right? That's going to delay the signing. And so when everything is more efficient and you can say, okay, all the signatures are here, everything is correct. It goes right into an e-vault. It gets the documents go right back to the title company. Everything is more efficient and quicker and all of that speed 
is really what title companies and lenders are looking for, let alone the borrower. Interesting. Has there been any work done? Have you seen any studies on like quantifying the efficiency and speed benefit to title companies and lenders? Uh, quantifying, quantifying from like a, I get right now, I'm thinking like financial perspective as we watch pressure on margins, it feels like an important topic to talk about. It does. Yeah. And there has been varying studies about how, uh, how much it will save you. And I've seen, you know, numbers of hundreds of dollars. Mm-hmm. It will save a lender per closing, especially if they're doing the e-note and not just all of the other documents. So yeah, it can be a h- hundreds of dollars per loan that it will save, which is huge when you think about, right? I haven't seen the latest statistics, but it gets over $8,000 right now, right? Yeah. Uh, when a loan is originated. And I heard uh, something at Western Secondary, um, I think the CEO of American Pacific said, this is the eighth straight quarter that the loan origination costs have risen. And so they're just going to keep getting higher. And this is one way that those costs can, can cut a little bit off those costs. Yeah, it doesn't sound huge, but two, two and a half percent off your overall cost of goods sold as a business operator. That's that's meaningful change to the to the bottom line. So so you mentioned e-note as being an important part of fully realizing the the cost and time efficiencies. So let's let's define e-note before we jump into the rest of the conversation. Sure. Yeah. So an e-note is an electronic promissory note. And there is the MERS e-registry. So full disclosure, I worked for MERS for 10 years. And the MERS e-registry has been around since 2006. And it wasn't really being used, right? People didn't really mm, have the knowledge of how to use it. There was a big knowledge barrier there, nor did they really understand the benefits of why they should use it. And about five years ago, about 1% of all loans in the country were closed using in e-note. Everything else was still being done via a paper note. And now it's up to about six, 7%. So there has been a lot of adoption over the last five, six years. And when an e-note is signed electronic, so it's generated electronically, signed electronically, and then they're Fannie and Freddie accepting notes, Ginny Mae now accepts e-notes. And there are about 25 investors that accept them now. But the tricky thing and part of the problem with the adoption of e-notes is that everybody in the e-mortgage ecosystem or the mortgage ecosystem has to be able to accept it, right? So if I'm an originator and I want to start generating e-notes and having my borrower sign it, I can't do it if I'm being funded by a warehouse lender who doesn't fund an e-note. If I'm using a subservicer and they don't know how to subservice e-notes, I can't do it. If my uh, aggregator doesn't purchase an e-note, I can't do it. If my custodian doesn't know how to store an e-note, I can't do it. So everybody on down the line has to, A, understand it, be registered with the MERS e-registry and have gone through that training and that integration with them. And so that's been a lot of the barrier too with e-notes, but we've seen a lot more companies get on board with that and understand the value and the efficiencies there. And a lot of it is around security with that e-note. You were telling me pre-show that you're uh, you're going to a, a pretty big baseball game tonight. So let's use um, a baseball analogy for a <laughs> second and, uh, and talk about where do we stand on that, that end-to-end adoption of um, accepting e-notes. So, like, let's leave, let's use baseball. What 
what inning are we in and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and talk about the, talk about the path to, um, to full adoption. Oh, Clayton, that's a really good analogy. I'll tell you what, we were stuck in the first inning for a long time, right? Top of the first, I would say. And while I was at MERS, um, the last, I would say half of my tenure there was really focused on industry adoption. So it was a lot of awareness and education for all aspects of the industry. And I would say while I was there, we moved into the bottom of the first, right? Where more people were getting up to bat and getting hits. Because it's one thing for people to integrate with the Mersey registry. I'd say they're up to bat, right? Maybe they've made it to first base when they integrate, but then people don't do anything with it a lot of times, right? Yes, we're integrated. We can originate an e-note. And then, right, they cross that finish line. Their project manager has perhaps gotten them there, but then nobody kind of helps them get to second base, right? There's no sign calling to get to second base, if you will. And that's because maybe they didn't educate their LOs, right? So their LOs don't know that this is an option that they're offering customers. Or if they do know it's an option, they don't know how to do it. They're more comfortable with the paper promissory note. So there's a lot just once a company is even ready to go to get those runners from first all the way around to home to have successfully originated an email or funded an email because they don't have that manager or that champion that's really helping them do it at the top of the organization. Now I would say, you know, we're in the second inning, you know, we're getting ready for maybe that third inning drag, hopefully in the next year, right? Where uh, there's, you know, a third of the way through as far as getting that adoption and that understanding. Um, but there's a long way to go to get to the ninth inning. You know, I've been on a lot of panels, heard a lot of panels where people ask, what year will we finally get there? What mm-hmm. year will we have hundred percent adoption? I don't think we'll ever have hundred percent adoption to be frank with you. Like at least while I'm still working in this industry, but as far as getting it to 50%, I think that's definitely something we can see while we're still doing this. Are, are we still, are we facing any significant technology barriers? Are we, are we purely playing an adoption and integration game at this point? I would say there are some technology barriers. A lot of it is some companies get so overwhelmed because they don't know where to start, right? Mm-hmm. They hear a pitch from a lot of different technology vendors and they don't understand what vendor A does compared to vendor B, yep. compared to vendor C. All these acronyms are thrown out like you and I talked about at the top of the show. They don't understand them and what will work for their business model, right? Do they have the bank branches? Don't they, right? <clears throat> are they using the federal home loan banks? Like there's so many nuances. And if they're not dealing with somebody who's really holding their hand and coaching them throughout, here's how to implement this in your organization, they get scared confused and oftentimes just give up, especially if there's not that champion that understands how all the technology will integrate. And I've heard, you know, from a lot of CTOs or CIOs who've said, you know, we're not going to, we don't have time for this. We have all of these other integration plans, right? Like we're uh, integrating a new LOS. We're doing a new servicing system. You know, we have to put on these enhancements for this new, um, Uh, feature of a new product or because, you know, some compliance effort came across the desk. So that is still a huge barrier as far as just freeing up the time internally for each mortgage company's 
IT department to realize that it is a priority, right? And to carve out their time. So I'd say that's one of the technology barriers. The other one is, is understanding how all the integrations work between all the various systems that you would have to connect. That's another huge barrier. So there's kind of two pieces of it, the internal and the external. I think the industry has made positive steps in moving past the mindset of there's going to be one end-to-end technology partner who takes us like from 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 point of sale to to close and and secondary markets and it's a good thing that lenders are figuring out how to integrate best of breed solutions to build a tech stack that works for their unique business but i do recognize it creates complexities in understanding how all the the pieces work together so when you talk about and that, that mention of a, a potential end state where 50% of the market is adopting e-mortgages or, or e-closings. Um, do you think that's, that 50% adoption is concentrated in like the top 10 or top 50 Humda lenders who have the IT resources to fully understand the strategy? Or do you think even in some of the largest lenders, only a only 50% of their volume will end up being done through, through e-closing? I actually think it's a combination, right? So, I mean, I've seen some of the numbers on some of the bigger lenders, right? And what percentage of their loans are done via e-notes, right? So a couple of the larger lenders have a high percentage of their loans now, or, okay. or their closings being done electronically or using the e-note. But then there's smaller players jumping on board because it's easier for them to do it, right? And let's sure. look at some of the credit unions, right? They hold their loans for portfolio. So it's a lot easier for them because they're not working with that ecosystem down the chain, right? They don't have to worry about if their investor can purchase an e-note or not because they're retaining their servicing. Mm -hmm. So I think that it's a combination of some of the larger lenders whose mission is really to be, you know, provide the latest technology to their borrowers. They'll have a huge chunk of them. Then we'll see a lot of smaller players with a lot of volume. And then We'll see, you know, a significant chunk of other people that just aren't moving forward for one reason or another. It's kind of um, it's kind of disappointing to think that we're only in the in the second inning with <laughs> with the. Who um, <laughs> I mean, it's positive from like a business growth uh, business growth perspective. Escrow tab, you have, you have all the opportunity in the world. Only in the second inning, let's go, let's go get it. But um, but it's it's I, I've. You know, I've, I've said and I've heard the dialogue that like COVID was a proponent of of adoption of of e closing solutions, and it seemed like there was an acceleration of certain technologies. Ron being a big one of them um, over the last twenty four to, to twenty eight months. Um, so, do do you still feel that COVID played a role in accelerating adoption in this space? And um, and was that was that role really just moving us from top of the first to bottom of the second, or <laughs> top of the top of the second? <laughs> I do feel that COVID played a role because it gave lenders a sense of urgency yeah. that they did not have. Right for years, I was at MERS doing all this education. We would have you know hundreds of people sign up for a webinar. We'd have a couple hundred people come to yeah. our e mortgage boot camps. Right, so people were very interested in learning but then they wouldn't take action, right? Because there was no urgency for them to take action. But when COVID hit, we were inundated with people saying, I want to integrate with the emergency registry now, next week, next month, right? When can I start? I need to do e-closings. And so it provided that sense of urgency that we'd been looking for. Now, 
you know, some lenders moved forward and started implementing, I would say the vast majority didn't. Mm -hmm. And so what it did was it did move the needle somewhat. It got people researching it that hadn't researched it, but it maybe didn't get as many people to take action as we thought it might, or we would have hoped. Let me guess, housing market uncertainty has you guessing what's around the corner. It's the reason we created Housing Wire Annual. Housing Wire Annual is where the community from across the housing ecosystem comes together to share strategies, drive business, discover new technologies, discuss best practices, and meet industry leaders. With four different tracks, including mortgage, real estate, valuation, and title, our agenda is power-packed with content to propel your company to the next level and connect you with the industry playmakers. Join us October 3rd through 5th at the Fairmont Princess in Scottsdale, Arizona. Head to housingwireannual.com to secure your spot now and use code PODCAST20 for 20% off tickets. That's fair. That's fair. So how, like, so we talk about COVID being an accelerator. How how has the market of 2022 impacted e-closings and, and I guess brought more broadly like tech adoption as a whole? Like we we came into the year with, with an anticipation that the the refi wave would take um you know some of the the chaos off of processing, underwriting, and origination departments. Uh, it's you know been more challenging than I think anyone really anticipated this year. But if anything, there is some bandwidth in lending and title organizations. H- how is um how's this market impacting adoption? Yeah, it's actually a really great time for tech vendors. And at another one of the panels I was at at the Western Secondary Conference a couple of weeks ago, there's a CEO panel, and they were talking yeah. about what they were focused on right now in the down market. And it was M and A. A couple of the companies were focused on which companies can we acquire. focused on the growth of their loan officers. How can we continue coaching them, retain the good ones, educate them, and then educate your employees more broadly because you haven't really had time to do that over the past couple of years. And then the third thing after M&A, in no particular order, M&A, coaching, developing employees and LOs was tech adoption, right? That they actually have time now to sit down and have these conversations with tech companies across the board, you know, not just e-closing, but everybody who's been knocking on their door, inundating their inboxes for the past couple of years, they can actually sit down and look, oh, what efficiencies might these companies yeah. bring to me, right? So they have the time. Plus, again, they kind of have that sense of urgency because they're looking for every way they can to cut margins. Mm-hmm. I mean, our mission at HW is moving markets forward. I mean, we've always believed that a better information, better access to knowledge from partners like like yourself will create a more efficient, um, and the word I've been using this year is elastic mortgage industry. The, mm-hmm. uh, the, the waves of hiring and firing are just brutal on the reputation and mindset of professionals uh, across our industry. And I mean, the, the mortgage world brings such a you know, a valuable service to the American economy and American homeowners. It's, um, you know, it's brutal to see like the reputational roller coaster of the, these massive waves of hiring and firing. So with some of those, those panel discussions around building infrastructure that allows the industry to flex and, and retract in volume without having to fire thousands of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. That, and I think that that's one thing that as we've talked to lenders over the past couple of years, you know, obviously sometimes tech across the board says, okay, 
this can save you five FTE, right? Or X number of FTE if you implement our tech. And execs are scared of that, right? Because they don't want to say, oh, we're putting people out of a job, right? That tech is going to displace some of our workforce. But now people are having to displace some of their workforce because of the current environment. And so I think it's a different mindset that tech can help them, right? Keep their company afloat and keep the X number of employees they currently have instead of having to lay off even more. And when I think of like elasticity and staffing, like I don't think of like tech helps like eliminate roles, It, but it should help us get to a place where next time we have the blessing of a high volume, low rate environment, we don't have to double headcount to manage that, right. knowing that on the other side of the, the cycle, there's going to be a reduction. And I mean, that, that that's like the, the painful part, right? Like we don't want to create like a housing economy that does not like provide the jobs that it does today. Um, but we would like to create a housing economy that doesn't like act like a rubber band in terms of headcount numbers um, every, every turn around the corner. Um, so yeah, I mean, I- ex- exactly. And that's one of the things we're talking about now is right. Title companies can do more closings mm-hmm. per FTE when they have the technology, yeah. right? So you can pick up a lot more bandwidth and be more elastic with your day, if you will, even. Right. So I like that term, the elasticity of it. Amy, the uh, I, we, we talked a lot about like just knowledge and like the knowledge barrier to to technology adoption and specifically around some of the the acronyms and e closing and e notes. Um, you've kind of chosen a uh, one of the the niche of nichest responsibilities in in the housing world of being a, a e closing influencer with Moses's musings and your your activity at uh, at conferences. How has your you know, role as a, a marketing leader in the e-closing space, like created a platform for you to help educate? Yeah, that's a great question, Clayton. So and, and I, and I don't you know, know if you've ever like considered yourself an e-closing influencer, but I, I, <laughs> I mean, I think if we're going to like, if we're going to like create that job category, you're, you're, you're going to fall into it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I need to add that to my description on LinkedIn, I guess. E-closing <laughs> influencer. Well, so when I was at MERS and, you know, I'd mentioned the need for education across the industry, yeah. right? We really sat down with um, the CEO of MERS at the time, Brendan Weiss, who's now the co-founder of EscrowTab. So I'm working with him again. And at the time, Brendan and I sat down, how can we educate the industry at large, right? Because at, at MERS, we weren't really selling anything per se, right? We just wanted adoption. Mm -hmm. And so how do we go about and do that? And one of the things we did was create something called the e-mortgage bootcamp. And we offered that a couple of times a year. And it was the first conference that brought together all of the leaders in the e-closing space, right? So we had the experts from Fannie, from Freddie, from the first couple originators, right? Who are doing this from the very first one or two warehouse lenders who are saying, yes, this is a good thing for the industry, which that's tricky, right? Because for a warehouse lender, it's there's not always a lot of benefits to them. Like there could be detriments to them. So they have to actually get on board with it and say, yes, this can, this can help the industry. Um, so all those different players in the industry, who are the leaders? And so we brought them together and I, I still run into people who say, you know what? I learned more than I ever learned in any other method by attending that e-mortgage bootcamp, or I started down the e-closing road because of the e-mortgage bootcamp. And so it, that did a couple of things for me, right? It really realized the hunger for knowledge that people had. And when you get those experts together in the room, 
how valuable it is, not just the sessions and the panels, but when a lender who has questions can go up and ask all of the leaders in that space, very detailed questions or sit down and have meetings with them, you know, how to move their organization forward. So that was a big piece of it. And then now in my role at escrow tab, you know, going to a lot of events, I've had people ask me, well, how was such and such event like, right? Like what was the mood there or what was the theme? What were people really talking about? And so last year uh, when I was at SnapDocs, I really started thinking about how I could get that message out kind of in an informal way, right? Because Mm -hmm. I wasn't on a stage leading a conference anymore, sharing things that way. So, and I wasn't, I mean, we had some webinars, but it wasn't like at MERS. I mean, I was pumping out 12 webinars a year on all the different intricacies of eNotes. Yeah. <laughs> you could believe we could have 12 different, you know, hour-long webinars about just about eNotes. You can do that. Um, so that's where Moses's Musings was born, right? I just thought, okay, people are hungry for this knowledge. I know a lot of people in the industry. I'll just do my best to capture the essence of a conference in a post. and it just really took off. And, and whether I'm looking for it or not, there's always mentions of e-closing and tech, right? Mm-hmm. At every conference, either in the hallway conversations or in the sessions. And so it's easy to meld that in to the post because everybody's talking about it. And are you, are you just using LinkedIn for Moses's musings or are you put like using any other social platforms? How, what's, what's that strategy look like for you? Yeah. Yeah. It's just LinkedIn actually mm-hmm. that I'm using mm-hmm, because it seems like that's where the vast majority of, of people gravitate towards. Yeah. I, I don't know if, um, if Snapchat or TikTok is quite the e-closing environment yet, but maybe, maybe one day, uh, LinkedIn right. feels appropriate. <laughs> maybe going forward. So through your frequent conference attendance and uh, speaking and and travel, what are like, what are some of the things that you've learned about how to maximize your time, like in person at an industry event? I mean, like anything, preparation is key, right? Really taking time to understand the event, which I know it's really hard to do, especially when you're hopping from event to event, right? Is to sit down and really dig in to the event that's coming up. What's the schedule? Who's going to be there if you have the list, right? If you don't have the list, doing some informal networking to determine who's going to be there and how can you maximize those opportunities? And for me, I look at it from wearing the conference organizer hat too, right? As a conference organizer, you're trying to provide the best networking opportunities for your attendees. And so I'm always looking for, oh, what's built in that I can take advantage of? And a lot of people don't, right? Like, is there a hot breakfast where people are going to be sitting down in the morning before everything gets started and you could sit down and have a conversation with somebody you've never met, right? Or maybe you run into somebody and sit down and chat with them. And there's a lot of people that don't do that, right? They're in their room working up until the last second and then rushing in. So trying to find those pockets of time that the conference has built in for you to have informal conversations, I think is one of the huge keys. All right. So event organizer to event organizer. We have we have housing our annual coming up on October 3rd. So we're less than less than eight weeks away. Um, what what advice do you have for me on helping create environments that help our attendees learn more and network more and be and be, be as productive as possible? Ooh, oh, that's a good question. I'm very excited for housing wire annual. I have to add. Uh, You know, something that we just did, so I've been helping the California MBA 
plan some of their conferences. Mm -hmm. And last year, as one of the sponsors, I realized that, you know, late at night, there's a good opportunity for people, right? Because sometimes when you have events in the evening, a lot of people bail for dinner, right? They're having client dinners, prospect dinners. But when they get back to the venue, there's kind of that late night opportunity to kind of have a late night happy hour and people might have the Mm -hmm. munchies, you know, have some more drinks, continue that conversation. So I found that that's kind of a key timeframe that a lot of people don't take advantage of as a conference organizer. It's also, I mean, as a, I attended an event earlier this week and like cocktail receptions are a great time to like solidify relationships. Like on on Monday, I had a 30 minute meeting with a gentleman and then bumped into him at the networking reception later. And that, that was like the solidifier. Like we had a good conversation in like the formal environment, but like being able to hang out for 30 or 45 minutes afterward and like recap a couple of things we talked about, that was um, probably more valuable than the initial like formal conversation. Right. Oh, I definitely agree. I would say attend every reception that the conference provides if you can, because you never know what business opportunities will come out of that and what relationships you'll forge or strengthen. That's awesome. So, um, so Amy, I have a, I kind of one that kind of like last line of questioning for you. So like mm-hmm. this year, uh, you're recognized as a housing wire marketing leader, a, um, and an honor well-deserved because of the, the success that you've had throughout your, your career from, uh, GMAC to, to MERS and SnapDocs and escrow tab. What have been some of the, the key learnings that you've developed in this, in this path about the marketing tactics that work well for, for raising awareness? or the, the the ways that you've changed your style or approach to education or marketing strategy. I just want to kind of hear a little bit more about how you've evolved as a mortgage marketing and technology leader. Yeah, that's an excellent question. So at GMAC, uh, I was doing marketing for our subservicing arm, right? Okay. At the time when we were the number one subservicer in the country. <laughs> I still like to throw that out there all these years later. But it was very textbook, I would say, out of the box, Right. Like we were working with trade pubs, which don't exist anymore. And there were trade pubs that didn't exist. That, yeah. Right. And so it was bylined articles, right. Advertisements in the back of a big. Uh, the classified ads journal, in the back. Right? Yeah. yeah. The classified ads. I couldn't even think of the term, right. The classified ads. And so that was, you know, we did mailers, right. So to think about just how marketing has evolved over the past couple of decades, but it was very textbook, if you will, right? Like what you learned to do at a, in a marketing course. And at MERS, it was really intriguing because we had the relationships, which we were at an advantage there, right? At a lot of companies, you yeah. don't have all the relationships we had with MERS. I mean, we have over 5,000 members, not that we had good relationships with all of those, but we had a connection to reach out to them. And so then it was more all relationship focused, right? How could I use the people within my organization that had those relationships to get the message across? And so it really changed my perspective of how we needed to communicate with our customers or what we called members. And so it became a lot more one-on-one or direct communication. And that's when we really you know, implemented that education, right? And started thinking along the lines of content, like how can we provide them that content? And then at SnapDocs, I would say what was interesting for me there was the events because historically that company had not done a lot of events. 
And so working with a team of people who didn't understand the power of events really caused me to think about it from a whole new light, right? How to educate my colleagues to take advantage of events and the importance of the one-on-one relationships in the mortgage Mm -hmm. industry, because a lot of people came from tech. They didn't come from mortgage. And so it was like night and day what I had at MERS, right? I had my AEs had been out in the field for 20 years, you know, their buddy at this bank, he was a ring bear in their wedding, you know, <laughs> like they had these relationships that other people would kill for. Right. And then at Samtox, it was very different. It was people who were brand new to the industry. And so how to educate them to take advantage of events, but really continuing with that theme of content. And then at, when I came to escrow tab, right? Again, I'm like, what can I provide content wise? And that's where I did all of this research on iPad and found there's really nothing, right? There's a huge void in the industry about iPad education. And so that's what I've been starting to fill since I've been at escrow tab. So continuing to focus on the content, but then the relationships to me, like nothing can beat the relationships that you've built with people and how you can help each other, right? How the relationships I've built can help me and how I can help others as far as getting the word out and awareness about what we're trying to do for the industry. And that's that's the key too, right? It's what we're trying to do for the industry. As you said before, what housing wire is trying to do, mm-hmm. right? I can't remember the exact phrase you use, but it's, you know, moving the industry forward. How did moving you say markets it? Forward, yeah. Moving, yeah, moving markets forward. Moving markets forward, forward yep. right? That's what we're trying to do. And I think that's really the key is we are moving markets forward. Like that's what I've been doing dedicating my time to e-closing over the past six years. And that's what a lot of people miss. It's not like I'm selling you this piece of technology, right? I'm trying to help move your business forward and move the industry forward. And I think consistency is like a a word that keeps coming up in my mind of like something that's necessary to move things forward. And like, that's one of the impressive parts of your, your LinkedIn strategy of Moses's musings is the consistency. Like you keep going, keep going, keep going. And like the audience builds, they know what to expect. People come to you for, for information, your message around e-closing continues forward as the industry steps from the top of the first to the bottom of the first and on. Yeah. I'm going to have to like hold you to Amy. I'm going to have to ask you to um, when you think we've like stepped to the third inning or the fourth, inning you gotta like shoot me a note and we'll come back on and yeah. talk about the precipice for like why we're stepping forward because i i um I, this is only fun if we talk about not just where we are today but how we, we are like stepping forward and um maybe getting that seventh inning stretch one day and figuring oh out oh my gosh there. yeah i would <laughs> love to get to the seventh inning stretch we could think take me out to the ball game like yeah. maybe we could make up some words yeah for the mortgage industry but yeah the consistency you mentioned is so important and i mean moses's musings is a labor of love because i have so much content after the conferences right i have so mm-hmm. many photos and then trying to really carve out time to be intentional about providing it to people and making sure that it's, it is consistent because people are looking for it. And it's funny. I took a couple of days after my last conference to post just with things I had going on both at work and life. And when I mentioned it to somebody I was talking to in a meeting, he's like, yeah, I've been checking every day for that post, like waiting for it. Right. So it's a weird thing to hear like, Oh, people are sitting out there waiting for that. And so I do feel like it is a, a service that I'm providing people. And, you know, one other thing about conferences I want to mention is the content is so rich 
And there's so much time spent, as you know, as the conference organizer, right? First determining what the topic should be, mm-hmm. then lining up the right speakers and making sure the sessions are a success. And then so many conference attendees don't take the time to attend any sessions, right? Yeah. Or maybe one session. And so I really encourage people back to the conference probably carve out time to attend half an hour of content, you know, a couple hours of content, whichever ones you think will be most applicable to you, because it is really rich. And when I started taking notes for Moses's musing, that's where I'm like, I'm getting the most out of it because it forces me to pay really close attention and look for those nuggets, whether it's data points or quotes that I want to use. And it's so rich. And I feel like so many people just do not get their money's worth out of an event because they aren't attending enough of the sessions. What's always blown me away at like different mortgage industry events is that like the technology account execs and the folks that are there to like man boost and have one-on-ones don't spend any time in the sessions. Like, because yes. if I'm selling, oh my God, I can get all my talking points for like the next three to six months in a couple <laughs> of good general sessions. Um, so like, yeah, if I'm selling anything in uh, in mortgage tech or services or solutions or correspondent or wholesale, like these are the talking points that like help you be the expert to your client. So clients and prospects. Right. So yeah. I, yeah. I, I and you're hearing that. from from lenders, right? Like mm-hmm. that's the beauty of it. You're hearing from the people you want to sell to. Yep. They're talking off the cuff in their own words about what's important to them. Yep, exactly. Well, Amy, I'm excited to, to see you on stage at Housing Wire Annual. We ha- you're going to be speaking on the future of marketing in our Marketing Leaders Success Summit. Um, this is a, an invite only kind of uh, form, but if any of our housing news audience members want to join to see this session, just shoot me a, a note on LinkedIn and we'll, we'll see if we can get you hooked up with uh, with an invite to the Marketing Leaders Success Summit. Amy, really thank you so much for your time today and excited to see you in Scottsdale in, uh, in seven weeks or so. Sounds great. I'm excited to play ball, Clayton. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. And yeah, I encourage everybody, if you're not registered for Housing Wire Annual, Come see us out in the desert. I was there last year for the first annual and excited to be coming back again. I know there'll be great content there. Bam. Now that is a wrap of this week's episode of the Housing News Podcast. Do me a huge favor and go to iTunes and rate this show. And if you leave a comment, you better tune in next week because you might get a shout out. Thank you.